Welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode 27, Objects to Observe in the July Night Sky. My name is Chris, and I'm here with Shane. We are amateur astronomers, and we're doing a podcast on how to observe the night sky. Um, and we talk a lot about astronomical equipment and what we like to observe. And for the most part, like about 60 or 70% of these conversations are just conversations that Shane and I pretty much have anyway. And then we thought we would just record them and organize them a little bit better and put them out into a podcast format. How are you doing today, Shane? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing very well now that we're starting to get some dark skies again. So I'm really excited for July here coming up in a couple of days. But, you know, I didn't put this in the show notes, just mention it to you. And we do not plan these hardly at all. I think our planning sessions are averaging one minute. <laughs> by my recollection. I think that's accurate, yeah. <laughs> and typically what we do is we pick a topic or, or we, have, we have a few preset topics um, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make up some, some notes for those sort of on our own, uh, share them a little bit with each other. But, uh, but really for the most part, it's, um, it's a little bit fly by the seat of our pants. And these are very much just the conversations that you and I would have anyway. So... <laughs> Yeah, it seems to work well. Uh, yeah, but I on like, this I like, one here. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I like the low effort in terms of prep, preparing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's meant to be fun and, uh, you know, and educational and, and maybe even entertaining for those that are, that are interested in learning the nighttime sky. But um, at the start of this one, we've done a few of these objects to observe in like whatever month now. This, this will be, I think, our, we did uh, May, June, and this will be our July one. Um, but just kind of as a reminder to people, there's there's a couple things that you need to really fully take advantage of this. And that is, uh, well, the first thing is to go to skymaps.com. And these are freely available monthly uh, sky charts you can use, and they are excellent. Um, and you'll need, you'll, you want to print this off, really, uh, and take, take out a printed copy. And there's information on the left side about um, the different pairings between the moon and the planets and constellations and bright stars. This will really help you learn the night sky. They've done an excellent job and they put this out as, as a free service. They also sell like a variety of books then and there. I have no connection. We have no connection with skymaps.com, but I think what they've done is truly uh, an excellent service for the amateur astronomy educational community, which, which we're, we're a part of. I teach astronomy classes and sometimes Shane comes and helps lectures on those. And in the summer, we go and do public outreach and education in uh, a national park. And we also do uh, lots of other sessions over the past uh, decade with our involvement in various astronomy clubs and organizations. Um, so you'll need that. The other thing is a little red flashlight. Now you can buy uh, a sort of a $25 or $20 uh, astronomy red flashlight. It's not really necessary if you're, if you're not really looking to do a mail order. Um, what you can do is just get, our, and you may already have one of these little tiny uh, flashlights are a little bit longer than D-cell uh, battery, maybe about like two D-cells together. And then just get a little bit of red duct tape or something that, that's red uh, because you want to make that a very dim red light for reading your star chart. And that's because when you use a red light uh, on something at night, you're allowing your eye to stay dilated so you can really take in the starlight. If you use a white light or a light on your cell phone or something like that, unfortunately it's too bright and it will restrict um, your eyes such that it won't be able to take in faint starlight. It'll be very difficult to actually see the stars. So you need the map and then you need your, um, your little red light. 
Uh, and they do sell them at star parties. Not if you get to a star party, you can buy them from the telescope store online. But most people have like a lot of these free giveaway uh, flashlights uh, that they can use, or, or you can buy at a very affordable price. When I teach my classes, I usually buy a few packs of them. Like I think they come in four or eight. Usually I'll have like a whole drawer of them here. And I, if people need them, I take them and I give them away to people just to get people started right uh, in astronomy. The other thing uh, people might want is like a pair of binoculars, eh, Shane? Like, what, yep, what you love binoculars. Your, yeah, yeah. So that's what people are going to want to have next. You, you need to have the little red flashlight and a printed off chart. Um, you can try using a phone or something, but I really don't recommend using software on a phone or tablet or anything like that under the night sky. It just doesn't work as well. And even dim to their, their dimmest level, it's still going to be too bright for your eye to, to work well in the night sky. And you're just going to create another challenge for yourself. But for binoculars, what do you recommend for a good pair of binoculars, Shane, for people if they're looking to get started? Yeah, so there's two numbers with binoculars. Like uh, a common binocular would be like 7 by 42. So the first number is the magnification. For that number, I would say seven to eight times, uh, no higher than eight, at least for myself. And yeah. the reason for that is it's just really hard to hold them steady when you're looking at the sky if, it, if the magnification is much higher. Um, so anything under eight times uh, would be great. And yeah. then the other number is the diameter of the objective or the diameter of the kind of the lens in your binocular. And kind of bigger is better uh, because it the, the larger that is, the more light it will uh, be able to collect and prov provide a brighter image for you. Um, but, you know, common binoculars in that size would be like seven or eight times by 42. Uh, that's quite common in the market right now. Yeah. So there's a variety that are like a seven by 35. I actually, that's what I use. That's what I really have come to love is after trying like bigger binoculars and all kinds of different binoculars, I really love the seven by 35 because with the low power, it's very steady with a small objective. It's very light. And I find like I can hold them for a really long period of time. So whereas my seven by fifties are just a little bit better and, and they're a more expensive binocular. Um, but uh, I can't hold them for quite as long and I don't have quite as wide a field of view. So I just really love those seven by 35s. And I, and I know lots of people are using like eight by 42s and eight by 40s these days. And I think if, if one was gonna own only one pair of binocular, something in like the eight by 40, and in particular, might not necessarily even be the binocular I recommend the most, but the number one binocular um, that, probably close to 100 people who have taken my astronomy class have purchased and I have no connection with Pentax is the Pentax uh, 8x40 and I think they're on like the WP4 or something like that at this point but but it's the WP and typically they run uh, I think around in the 130 to 140 dollar American range or something like that and they're a slightly more expensive binocular but the optics are uh, really really good in them and people really like them. I typically recommend slightly less expensive binoculars. And uh, you know, I, I think people really don't need to spend as much on binoculars. The only thing people need to watch out for is if you do need to wear glasses like I do for doing astronomy, just make sure they're gonna work well with glasses. And whoever you're buying them from or if you do some research online, you should be able to determine that uh, pretty easily. If you wear glasses, Chris, what kind of eye relief would you be looking for in a binocular? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So the ones that I find work pretty good are anything of 60 millimeters or longer. And the eye relief is simply the point out of the, the eyepieces between where the eyepiece um, stops and where the light will come to focus. That's sort of like a, 
it's not imaginary. It's real. It's just, you, you can't see it. It's not like a physical thing that you're going to look at the binocular and be able to tell how far this is. Um, but it's specified in the spec sheet for all the binoculars, how much eye relief they have. But if people don't need to wear glasses when they do binocular astronomy, um, and you'll know, so basically it's those of us, who, you know, like me, who are unfortunate have astigmatism um, that really do need to wear their glasses. Now, some people wear glasses and they don't have astigmatism. They just, they just prefer to wear their glasses and that's fine. Um, but a lot of people who don't have astigmatism uh, and wear glasses will just get binoculars that, that don't require a lot of eye relief and they'll just take their glasses off when they're using them. And that's, uh, that's totally fine too. Um, and if you can do that, then that opens up the whole world of uh, buying some of the really used, really excellent used binoculars from the used market from, uh, you know, the past 20 or 30 years, which are really excellent, widely available on eBay. Brands like Jason and Sears and others are, uh, and Tasco are just excellent and can be had for, you know, tens of dollars. Sometimes you'll see a really good pair of binoculars for like $9.99. And, you know, I've recommended some of those to people and they've, they've gotten them uh, if they meet uh, these requirements with need an eye relief. And, off to the races, really good stuff. Yeah, and if you need to wear your glasses, look for eye relief of around 20 millimeters. Yeah, is that what, okay, yeah. I find like 16 or longer can be, can be pretty good. My, I have really thin glasses and, you know, one of the other things to add is, depends on how, how your face and eyes and everything are shaped too. Yeah, I find I, I don't quite need as much as some people, I'm really surprised some people will say like the 20 millimeter, but that, yeah, that's generally good advice. Like if people don't know, then, then stick with that. I think my Vixens are 22 millimeter. And to me, that's almost getting a bit long, but for some people it's perfect. And then my, my Nikons I think are like 19 or 17. And I find them perfect for me anyway, but everybody's a little bit different. Um, and it's really not that critical thing. As long as they're a binocular that's stated for, for use with eyeglasses, then you should be fine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anything else to add to a little bit of a preamble on what you need to get going in astronomy? No, I think that's it. That's a good uh, start. Um, maybe if you're going to take binoculars out, maybe a chair, just for oh, comfort. Yeah. That, yeah, like a reclining lawn chair, if you get one of those, absolutely. That is, that was the best astronomical accessory that I waited the longest to, to get. And that is really awesome. I had never seen one before and I was at a star party. Somebody had a reclining lawn chair and I tried it with my binoculars and it was just like a, a radical revolution to my observing. And it, it immediately changed how I observed. Oh, <laughs> one thing I will mention is if, if people are pretty serious about getting into uh, amateur astronomy is, uh, and, and they, they are willing to purchase something, I would suggest beyond the binoculars uh, and the little flashlight is to get Terence Dickinson's Nightwatch book uh, through Firefly or, or your Amazon or however. Um, that is an excellent book on getting started in astronomy. It has a variety of charts, lots of great information in there. Uh, it is excellent. Although, although it's a Canadian book, um, it is uh, applicable for most, of, for most of the world. I think it's, it's more like Northern Hemisphere centric, but, uh, but beyond that, that it is just an excellent book that can really help, uh, guide you through it, uh, in the way that only Terrence Dickinson can. Yeah. Great recommendation. Yeah. So I think we're pretty happy with these, uh, these monthly segments on how to, how to observe the sky sort of on a month to month ongoing basis. Uh, they've actually been, uh, I think sort of consistently our most well-received and most downloaded podcasts. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think people like to hear what are the key targets and when to observe them. Uh, so we'll keep doing that. At the start of every month, we'll release a podcast, podcast. that talks about things to see in the upcoming weeks and, um, you know, kind of times and dates when you should uh, pencil certain activities in your calendar. And then we'll probably add, you know, some other objects throughout the month, uh, you know, yeah. in additional podcasts. Yeah. If anything comes up, like we'll mention that. And just as we, as we go through uh, the month, um, we do try to drill down at least, at least for a little bit, every, every, uh, I say every week, but I guess for people it'd be like every other podcast or so, um, you know, a little bit on some of, some of these uh, things that we're talking about here, but we kind of give uh, this big overview so that people can, can kind of plan their month a little bit. And, uh, and it's also kind of fun for us too, because we can look at what's coming up and, and this is what we do anyway. We go through, uh, what's coming up for the month. Then we kind of plan our observations around that. And then, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, but, uh, but if you don't have a plan, then, then you often won't, uh, won't figure out how to get out and, and take advantage of it. But we have some great planets on view and some excellent opportunities as they pair with the moon. And this will help to guide you uh, both in learning the nighttime sky as well. For those of us that do know the nighttime sky, it really helps us to uh, really enjoy and appreciate the aesthetic of being out under these stars, which, which is what we love to do. So we're going to refer to degrees um, a few times. And I should say degrees. I do have an accent. I do try to cover it up a little bit, but there you go. <laughs> I, think, I think it slipped in there a little bit. It's kind of funny. There's a few choice words. And if people listen very carefully, you will really pick up on my very backwards accent. But Shane, can you describe uh, degrees for us? We're going to talk about two degrees quite a bit in this podcast. And can you tell us how big two degrees is and how people can, can know if something is two degrees apart? Sure. So uh, basically, when you hold out your hand at arm's length, one finger is one degree-ish. So if we're talking about two degrees, we're talking about kind of one or two fingers width uh, when you extend your arm and, and just kind of look at the sky. Yeah, so if you hold your fist up at arm's length, that's about 10 degrees, I think. And so a finger held up at, at sort of arm's length, like as far as you can extend it and then sort of make your hand vertical or whatever, um, that's going to give you about, about two degrees. That's, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, and a full moon is one degree. So just to give everybody an idea of what one degree looks like in the sky. Half a degree. Half a degree? <laughs> it's oh, half my degree. bad. Oh, I thought it was, I always thought it was one. Well, your your fingers are uh, are smaller than most. Oh, must must be must be my scale. <laughs> yeah, I know it would be it would be super convenient if it if it was if it was one degree. I think I think I know what you're thinking of though, and that's that um, like often when we're doing those measurements, we're we're looking at like you know sometimes you'll think of like how many moons, and you start thinking in terms of like a singular unit, right? And, and I do the same thing. It, it's only because you explained it this time that I didn't say it that way. So thank you. Thank you, though, for that explanation. So we've got a big month. Uh, you know, <laughs> this will be our first trip so, to dark sky since May was, uh, was restricted access. Well, nobody had access to uh, a lot of the dark skies. And, uh, and to be honest, you know, like it just felt kind of weird going out and doing stuff uh, during the pandemic lockdown. And so we were just kind of taking it easy, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. We had lots of good observations of Venus in and uh, we're able to kind of get some milestones reached in our, in our podcast, but we should be able to get out to some dark skies this month. I think we've got a bit of a plan for that. Hey. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully for new moon, we'll head down to Grasslands national park and 
get some good weather for some observing. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. So on, and I'm just going to walk through though what's going to happen this month, um, in particular the moon. And I'm just going to reiterate, um, and this is on the skymaps.com uh, skymaps as well as uh, as these podcasts. But if you are learning the nighttime sky, you can really use the moon to guide you. And so frequently the moon passes by a planet or a bright star, or is it going through a constellation? Now you're going to be able to find the moon pretty easy. Um, everybody's familiar with what the moon looks like. Um, and so on, on any given night, um, the moon is going to be in one spot or, or another. Now, sometimes it's near the sun and then it's, it's in the daytime. So you're not going to be able to use it, but on the nights when it's out, you can kind of use this as a guide to determine, you know, what that star is or what that constellation is. And then over time, you can really build up your repertoire into, uh, you know, what constellation is where and what stars are where. And then you can use those as leaping points. The moon just cuts through a small swath of the constellations. It only passes through 13 constellations or so. And, and such that, uh, you know, it's not going to pass through all 88 constellations. And, you know, th that, that would just be odd anyway. But, uh, but as we go forward, you'll, you'll see. We point out when it's going to be near things. And then you know that those things, like, for example, if it's near a star or a constellation, those stars and constellations may be adjacent to other stars and constellations. And then you can kind of work your way out from there. How's that sound? Like it. Awesome. July 5th, full moon. Yeah, full moon. The best way to observe the full moon is no optics. And I've spent a lot of time drawing the full moon because uh, I thought it was really interesting and no one's ever really done it before. But the moon is going to be opposite the Earth on July 5th, and that's how the sun fully illuminates it. And also on July 5th is an unobservable event. It's a penumbral <laughs> lunar eclipse. And you'll always see these mentioned in things. And I, I don't know. I've gone out and tried to look for them before, Shane. I, I could not convince myself that I've seen a penumbral lunar eclipse. And this is when the moon is going through um, like the outer part of the Earth's shadow versus an umbra lunar eclipse where it goes to the really dark part of Earth's shadow. Right here, this is where it's just going. And I think it gets dimmed down like 10%. I mean, really, the difference in 10% is like, that could be the difference in the atmosphere in any given night, depending on how much moisture is in it. So I don't know that yeah. you can see that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you could really detect that visually. What would be interesting is to take a camera out, say the night before, take a snapshot of the moon, and then on the next night with the exact same settings on your camera, take another photograph. Just see if in the photographic images, if you can detect any differences, because I think you would need that A-B comparison to have yeah. any hope of seeing it at all. I think I've seen successful shots and I don't know, maybe it wasn't you that took them. I don't do photographs. Maybe it was Mike. And one, one of you guys, I remember, was able to get some, some penumbral shots um, like this. So if people do have that, you, you, can, you can go out and get them. But uh, yeah, it's not really a visual event. So, um, and it's going to be <laughs> observable in North America, South America, Eastern Pacific, uh, Western Atlantic. I'm not going to get into times that, but if you go to NASA map, and eclipse information, um, you will find it on that NASA map and eclipse information page. That's what it's called. Not sure why they call it the NASA map and eclipse information page, but that's what they call it. July 5th, though, there is a visible event. It's going to be, uh, you know, right around like very late in the evening. We have Jupiter and it's just under two degrees north of the moon. So on July 5th, Jupiter and the moon are going to pair up. 
So probably you're gonna to start to be able to see this around 11 o'clock-ish. That's when I can start to see Jupiter above my horizon. And then as it makes its way across the nighttime sky, you'll, you'll be able to see it. But the great part about that is if you don't know which bright star up there is Jupiter, um, on July 5th, it's gonna be the one right beside them or right uh, above the moon, right? So Jupiter is gonna be just about two degrees north of the moon or just under. Then the next night, it's really neat because Jupiter and Saturn are just far enough apart that on the following night, 24 hours later, Saturn is gonna be two degrees north of the moon. Um, so you're gonna be able to identify both of those planets. Um, and of course, you know that, uh, that Jupiter was the night before, so it's on the right if it happens to be cloudy on, on the fifth or vice versa. Uh, so you can really start to learn where those planets are. Then on July 10th, so what's going on on July 10th, Shane? Venus is at its, <clears throat> excuse me, greatest illumination. Yeah. So early in the morning. Early in the morning, exactly. So Venus is returning to the morning sky. I think you were tired of me talking about Venus. So <laughs> no, that's why I had you say I, this one. I, I, think, I think maybe our listeners are tired of us <laughs> talking about Venus. <laughs> we did a lot of Venus observing in the, in the springtime. Yeah, it was fun. I, I enjoyed yeah, it. I, I, I plan it. on getting up and doing, doing some more. So I think that, that this greatest illumination, I think this means that it's just like as, as fat as it can grow. I think that's all this means. So um, it's just poking up over the horizon really on, on July 10th. Uh, but it will be rising higher and higher in the mornings as the mornings, um, you know, I guess as, as darkness stretches further and further into the morning hours um, and Venus is coming back into the morning sky, it's, it's gonna appear to rise quite, uh, quite quickly over, over the month of July. On July 11th, Mars will be how far above the moon? Two, two degrees. Yeah, so it's kind <laughs> of finger. Yeah, it's kind of funny as I was going through this. Um, yeah, Mars will be two degrees north of the moon. So this is this is like the two degrees of separation month. Um, right. Right. So yeah, and and oh, sorry, go Chris, go ahead. No, no, go. Oh, okay. Um, so now you've identified Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, and you know now that you kind of have an idea of where they are in the sky and how bright they are. Once you've identified all three, if you kind of draw a line from them all the way down and kind of keep that same curve down to the horizon, you're now tracing out the elliptic uh, or ecliptic, um, uh, which is kind of the plane of the solar system where all of the planets uh, circle around the sun. And you can kind of keep drawing that line on the same arc towards the western sky and, you know, essentially plot the the path that the planets will take through the night sky so just thought i'd mention that because it's kind of a neat thing to observe as well yeah you know and it is one of the things that i think that photographs and videos and, and things of that nature don't don't quite capture and, and don't get me wrong i do really enjoy looking at uh, images that people like, like yourself and and others take I, I don't do images or videos of the nighttime sky and you know i do do love those but there's something very three-dimensional about viewing it in real time. Like you were saying, you kind of get a more accurate sense of the, the curving and the arcing. I always find like no matter what, um, the nighttime sky seems flat, like in a, in a photo, unless somebody's using a special sort of lens. But when you're out under the dome of the nighttime sky, you really, you really get that sense that it's this curved thing. And then the ecliptic really is curved, you know, so uh, you, can, you can see that. Yeah. And, and once you learn the positioning of these planets, 
um, whenever you go out, you know, for the rest of the summer, you'll, you'll just look in the sky and see them because they are quite bright, especially Jupiter. Um, and really Saturn and Mars won't be too far behind in terms of brightness and, uh, it'll be very easy to pull them out. And then, uh, it's really cool because if you're out somewhere and somebody is like, you know, this happens to us as amateurs all the time. We, we see somebody taking like a, like a selfie or something and they're like, wow, look at that bright star or something like that. And you're walking away and you go, that's no star. That's Jupiter or something. And they say, how do you know? And then when, when they ask you how you know, you can say, because I listen to the actual astronomy podcast. podcast. Shameless promotion. <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding. All right. So on July 13th, Ching, do you look at asteroids? No, but I should. It's on my list this summer. Okay, because I, I, I think you might have mentioned that it was on your list or something, because I put this on because I was like, I think she mentioned something about observing asteroids. I've observed Pallas before. It really looks like a little star, and what you do is you go out and you can kind of just watch it through binoculars uh, from night to night to night. But on July 13th, Pallas is going to be at opposition. So that's where it's opposite the sun in the sky, so that's when it will be at its brightest. You probably have to look it up and look for a star chart somewhere, but uh, I just put that in. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing, and you had mentioned maybe looking at... Uh, at some asteroids this year. And I think Pallas is one of those where it just hovers around uh, unaided eye visibility. So you can, can actually see it with your eye alone if you're under a dark sky. Otherwise, it's binocular town. Yep, for sure. Yep, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can pull that one out. And, and that's something you can even do from the city. Like any of the planets and uh, asteroids, um, you know, uh, light pollution doesn't impact it all that much. So go ahead and do it from the city. Yeah, and in fact, observing the moon and planets in, in a light-polluted city uh, has some benefit. And that is that, um, you know, your eye will more uh, accurately pick up color just because of the way that it works in a brighter environment versus a darker environment. And I think we've noticed this as well in our, in our observing. Yeah, definitely. I, I find like, especially subtle colors like Saturn, the disc of Saturn is, has some subtle variations in kind of the creaminess. And, yeah. and I notice I, I feel like I can detect that easier in the city than I can under a dark sky. Yeah. So July 14th, uh, that's gonna be a big night. Uh, we have Jupiter at opposition. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system, and it will be at its closest point to Earth for the year, making it brighter than at any other time this year. And it'll yeah. be visible all night long. Uh, and this will be the best time to take, take a peek. So what will you see of Jupiter? And we already talked about how you're going to find uh, Jupiter um, earlier in the month when it's paired up with the moon. So, so you ID it on those nights. Um, you can observe it uh, with binoculars on those nights. It's really not going to look appreciably different um, throughout the nights of the month. But uh, it will just be just a smidge brighter on the 14th. But what will you see of Jupiter if you look at it with a good pair of, say, eight power binoculars, Shane? Um, well, you'll see a bright ball, um, which is, you know, Jupiter itself. You might be able to pick out some ve like very slight coloration of the two main equatorial bands. Although, you know, maybe call me out on that, Chris, that might be a little too challenging for... It, it could be tough. I find it, yeah. to me, I kind of get it as like... A like a very pale yellowish, maybe dirty kind of dirty yellow ball, little ball. Okay. Yeah, That's about enough. all I get. But, but some people really can pull out details. So, you know, it's always incredible when you, when you hear from people and they've, they've actually been able to, to see something we, we didn't think would be uh, very easily observed at all. So people can try for it for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. As well as the Galilean moons, which we talked about on a previous podcast. Um, the, the four main moons around Jupiter are, there may only be two or three visible depending upon their alignment, but um, they're often out there. Yeah, and with, uh, with the small telescope, even the smallest telescope, like my 60 uh, or your 61, um, you, you can see those cloud bands. So if people have any sort of telescope at all um, that's of any reasonable quality, they should be able to see the bands on Jupiter. And the, the 80 millimeter telescope that I referenced before that you've been uh, doing a lot of surgery to and that even when it was working at its absolute worst, and this is a $99 telescope, um, you know, I could very easily see like four bands on Jupiter with it. You know, you, you could still see a fair bit of detail. Now, also on the 14th, we have Uranus, which is going to be four degrees north of the moon. And now Uranus is a pretty small aquamarine, uh, sort of maybe a teal green. And uh, yeah, it, it's really, this is a, a binocular object-ish, probably best uh, to see that teal color through, through a telescope of, of maybe eight inches or so. Have you ever seen Uranus before? Yep. Yeah. In my eight inch dub Sony and uh, many times I looked at it. Yeah. Is that, and was it, what color did you see? Kind of uh, like Neptune definitely stood out as an aqua, like, you know, a bluish tinge Uranus. Um, I, I would say not quite as aqua, um, but still to me, to my eye, it was a little bluish, even though it's, you know, I think it's more green, I think in actual photographs, but yeah. Hmm. You know. How about cool. you? color yeah I, I did back when I was much younger and now I see it more as as a bit more of a gray but I'm using smaller telescopes now too so when I was using like my eight inch or the 17 inch at the observatory it was definitely like an, you know in the 17 inch and 25 inch I did have access to for a while it was like an like an aqua greenish bluish teal color almost um, but yeah through the smaller instruments I get it more as a gray color unfortunately but uh, yeah, that's the way it is. No big deal. July 17th, we have Venus three degrees south of the moon. So, so this month, if you're kind of following along, you get a really great uh, pathway to the planets with following the moon sort of night to night. You start off by seeing a Jupiter pair with the moon, the next night Saturn. Uh, a few nights later, you got Mars, um, you got Uranus, you got Venus now on the 17th, just three degrees south of the moon. Um, so that will really guide you through the planets that are, that are visible in the nighttime sky this month. And then on the 20th, we have new moon. What's special about new moon, Shane? Well, that is the time to pack up your astronomy gear, get in your vehicle and get out of the city and go somewhere dark because there's no moon in the sky to light it up. And right. that's when you can see all sorts of great, uh, what we call deep sky objects. Um, like so nebulas, nebulas, clusters, yeah, exactly. you know, galaxies. Yeah. Good stuff. Also, what, what else happens on the 20th? Well, we talked about Jupiter being at opposition on the 14th. On the 20th, Saturn is at opposition. So that's when Saturn is visible all night long and is closest to Earth. So that'll be the best night of the year to observe Saturn if it's clear and the conditions are steady. And there's not much you can see with Saturn uh, using your binoculars other than just maybe identifying. You might see a little bit of an oval. I think even with Mike's 15 by 50 really high-end image stabilized binoculars, we can just kind of see the rings. It, they look remarkable, but through binoculars, I, I really can't see it more than just like 
it looks like a little football shaped object. How about you? Have you seen the rings through your binoculars? I don't even know if I've tried to yeah. be honest. Uh, maybe I should. Um, you know, it, it is fairly small and, and to start to pull out that detail, you, you need a telescope if you really want to take in the beauty of Saturn. Yeah. So a telescope is going to show you those rings, eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Not just the rings, but you know, on a good night of seeing with decent sized telescope, you'll see the main division within those rings. And you may see some coloration on the planet itself, like difference in the coloration uh, on Saturn. Yeah. And there's a bunch of moons there too. I, I think I put in here, Hey, we should talk about the moons, but you know, we, we did a podcast um, <laughs> last month in, in May, I should say, in May, I think where we talked about the uh, Saturn, Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune. So people can go back and, and take a listen to that if they're really curious about uh, hearing about the, uh, the moons of Saturn and what we think of those. So July 22nd, I'm pretty excited for July 22nd because Mercury is, is going to be at its greatest Western elongation. So that's going to be in the morning sky where it's going to be 20 degrees up. And I just saw it at the greatest Eastern elongation um, here just, uh, just a few weeks ago. So I'm pretty excited to kind of get up and, uh, and try to nail that one out. I don't know. Did, did you have any luck seeing Mercury when it was at uh, Eastern? No, I, I didn't even try. I, I'm trying to think if I was either busy or if, or if the conditions weren't very good. I, I don't recall. It was uh, tough. I think, I think you were stuck in the house or something and you were working mm -hmm. on something and you couldn't quite get the horizon. And then I tried to observe it around my neighborhood. Not, like I said, I have really good horizons. Um, one thing I have that, uh, that you don't is the horizons. You have definitely better darker skies than I do, but yeah, I couldn't get it around the house. And so I walked way out into a field for like half an hour, um, almost out to the highway. And, uh, and I was just barely able to see it out there. So <laughs> yeah, you need it really good horizon. We had a few nights and, and I saw it on a couple different nights, I think. So yeah, I look, look forward to seeing it, but of course, not really going to see much other than, than just identifying it, eh? Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, even with a telescope, I don't know how much detail you can really see on, on Mercury. You know, there's, I've read some observing reports about it. Um, it's similar to Venus. You know, any type of detail would be very fleeting, and uh, I'm just not sure there's a lot there. No, agreed. There's a great book by uh, Antoniati as edited by... Uh, Patrick Moore, I think it was published in uh, 1975. And he's just called like Observing Mercury and has like a map of Mercury on the front. Uh, looks quite good. Pretty expensive used. I think around $100 Canadian. So uh, don't have that on my bookshelf yet, but uh, maybe one day. Hey, we have a meter shower coming up at the end of the month. July 28th, 29th, we have the Delta Aquarius. Did you ever see the Delta Aquarius before? Uh, I don't know. Um I, it doesn't stand out for me. You know, I may have been out and seen a few of them, not realizing it was which meteor shower it was. Um, I'm guessing when we do our outreach events at the end of July, like many, like we, we've often had nights where we see lots of meteors yeah. like showing people stuff. And, and I'm guessing these would have been Delta Aquarid. So yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. We got a second quarter moon that night. It's going to reduce the number of fainter ones you're going to see. And the best time to see meteor showers is to get up early in the morning. Of course, it's like, that's the theme for astronomy. If you don't like to get up early in the morning or stay up all night, not the hobby for you, maybe. We're having this debate like we're doing. Uh, I was providing some feedback for the, uh, for the beginner course that the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada is doing. And they made some sort of comment about it being too late or something. And I was like, 
if people don't want to be out when it's dark, this is not the hot, like you have to be able to stay up a little bit. Like I'm not being Absolutely. cheeky or anything. It, it needs to get dark and go out and, uh, you know, you can kind of go out under compromised conditions in, in the city under light pollution, or maybe like at this time of year for us, when it's not quite dark, that's fine. But uh, yeah, you're, you're going to be going out a little bit at night. So uh, let's just, that's just the nature of doing uh, night sky observing. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee becomes a, a good friend. Yeah. I find once I get out, like even the other night, I really was bagged. I really didn't want to go out for whatever reason. I just wasn't up for it. it. The conditions were really poor. Like you said, it was cloudy and we had had the cloud. So I wasn't mentally prepared to go out. And then it cleared off just in the bottom quadrant of the sky. I got out and, you know, it was great. I was out there. I, you know, as soon as I got set up, I was like, this is great. I did half an hour, really nice period of time. And then packed it in and yeah, had some nice views of the planet. So, uh, so yeah, now Shane, you said something earlier on before we started the recording in our, in our one minute prelude about having some, uh, some other objects to add here. Did you say you have some comments that uh, people might be able to see? Yeah. Yeah. One comment in particular, uh, it is, uh, 2020 F3 Neo wise. Um, it's currently quite bright. Uh, it's, uh, uh, 2.5 magnitude, uh, and it's expected to brighten. Um, now, Chris, as an astronomer who's 2.5 magnitude, that is pretty bright. It is. Now, it's uh, approaching uh, perihelion on July 3rd, which is when the comet gets its closest to the sun. Uh, it kind of it goes around the sun and then gets slingshotted back out into the solar system. Where is it? Now, what part of the sky is it in? Well, it's in Orion right now. So oh. for us northern observers uh, in the northern hemisphere, it's not it's not in a good place. Um, however, uh, excitement dwindling. <laughs> <laughs> but but. Um, All right. You got to redeem yourself here now. Yeah. Now, if you wait until the end of the month ish, July 20th to 25th, um, it's going to be at its best positioning for us northerners. And if it survives perihelion, so that's the other thing. Every year in astronomy, there's at least one comet that gets astronomers excited because it has potential to really brighten. And the about 80% this, of the time, our hopes are terribly dashed yeah yeah comets are extremely unpredictable uh nobody really knows how much they will brighten um because there, there's so many factors just their reflectivity how much of their uh mass they lose as they approach the sun but when perihelion comes where they get the closest to the sun that's also the most dangerous time for a comet uh, the sun's hot it has an extremely you know strong gravitational pull most comets never come out of perihelion. They just get sucked into the sun and are destroyed essentially. Yeah. The ones that do survive though, those become usually quite substantial. Yeah. Uh, and, and I shouldn't even say our hopes are dashed 80% of the time. Our hopes are dashed, I think like more than 95% of the time because boy, <laughs> in the past 25 years, since I really got serious in astronomy, uh, I can probably maybe count six or seven comets that got really bright and were quite nice. Um, but yeah, many times like we'll get excited now on a few occasions they've, you know, one blew up once and that was really cool. And it just kind of kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you just couldn't see it anymore. That was really amazing. Then one, I remember one, I think it was 73 P was a periodic comet that was like 
going to be at its at its best place in in years for seeing it was going to supposed to be get pretty bright and it started to brighten up all of a sudden people like oh this is going to be really bright now because it's going to be at its closest and it seems even brighter than normal and it just kind of came apart like Mm -hmm. just like it just fell apart and then eventually there was just like nothing left of it yeah and sort of in an unspectacular way you know just fell apart so yeah so so perihelion (laughs) for this one is july 3rd so okay we'll have to we'll have to monitor this one see if it survives and then um if it is like if it does survive uh july 20th to 25th will be the best positioning for us in the northern hemisphere uh and it could be a bright one uh and the other thing is if it does survive it sounds like there will be two tails uh, there will be an ion uh, tail, um, as well as um, uh, well a dust and gas tail. Essentially, uh, the dust is its kind of shedding material, and then some gas from the heating of the sun. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let me let me say we're gonna we're gonna put you on on comet watch, and if things are looking pretty good for that, then I think think we should we should send out a special brief podcast on that. Yeah. Because that would yeah, that's, that would that's definitely be. Maybe we'll do a little bit on how to find it, uh, where to get a good chart, what to use to look at it, what part of the sky to see it, and we'll we'll kind of dig down a, a little bit. I think that's kind of what we're what we're doing here. All right. Well, that's really exciting. I'm pretty excited about that now. Uh, I think July is uh, is really shaping up to be good. We just gotta gotta get through these. <coughs> excuse me. Next five or six days with the the uh, rain, no wind, but rain that that uh, we're sort of suffering from now. That the wind is gone. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully the bad weather will be behind us in about a week and we'll have endless nights to observe. Endless nights, just like endless summer, just like surfing. I'm actually here in my shorts. We've had beautiful weather. I I observed in my shorts the other night. Yeah, I did too. Thursday night, that two-hour session was entirely in shorts and a t-shirt, which, you know, in in 50 degrees latitude, you don't get those nights every night. Did you make a donation to the blood bank that night too? No mosquitoes. No mosquitoes. I had one. I got bit once. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's not so bad. Not so bad. So cool. Any other objects that you kind of have on your, uh, on your radar? No, that's it. Planets, this comet. Um, and I think maybe one of our upcoming podcasts, we mentioned that we'll be in grasslands for a new moon. If the weather's good, um, maybe we'll do a podcast on what we plan to observe there. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right. Well, uh, let's just anything else to add. Oh, how can people stay in touch with us if, or if they want to get in touch with us or anything like that? Yeah. So uh, if you're on Podbean, you can message us through that app. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can find us at Actual Astronomy and feel free to message us there. And then the last one is email. Uh, we're also actualastronomy at gmail.com. So if you want to reach out or if you have uh, comments or suggestions on upcoming episodes, uh, let us know. Yeah. And I mean, we'd be happy, like if anybody like really wants something in particular and we can work it in, if, if it can be made to work, we will absolutely do it. Like I, when I teach my astronomy classes, maybe I should have mentioned this before. Um, I have so much material. I think I said I had like 40 or 80 presentations or something that I, I can just go and, and give and it's fine. And these, these podcasts are really discussions between you and I, but, uh, but I think we'd be happy just to kind of nail one out. You know, if anybody wants something in particular, um, that really is in the realm of amateur astronomy and in particular visual observing, which, uh, you know, we have lots of experience in. I think we can probably, uh, you know, sort that one out. But uh, otherwise, we're happy to keep going the way that we've been going. And it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, we really uh, get excited to see uh, more and more people uh, downloading the podcast and, uh, and more and more people following us. It's, uh, it's really interesting.
yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. And we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. All right. Bye-bye.